Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Ruth chapter 4, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there this morning. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, um, you can watch along on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, we have baskets in the aisle here that are full of uh, brand new Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, you can grab one of those and that's our gift to you. You can take that and keep that and hopefully it'll be a blessing in your life. This is the last week of a four-week series through the book of Ruth. And we're going to read the whole chapter, Ruth chapter 4. And Dave's going to come and preach this morning. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, well, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, well, then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are the witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there, the women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Thank you, Dave. 
<clears throat> Thank you, Luke. Good morning, everyone. Who likes happy endings? Oh, both of you. Well, most people like happy endings. Just this week, I was reading about a, a teacher in a primary school, a year one, two class in a, a very multicultural school. And one day after recess, the students all came in, came in and she said, now, class, I'm going to ask you all what you did at recess. And then based on what you did, I'm going to ask you to write something on the board. And if you can write it correctly, you'll all get a prize. And the students are like, yay, prize. So first of all, she asked little Jessica in the front row, Jessica, what did you do at recess? And Jessica said, I played in the sandbox. And the teacher said, oh, very nice. Well, if you can write sand on the board, you can have a prize. And next to Jessica was little Abdul. Abdul, what did you do at recess? I played in the sandbox with Jessica. Oh, isn't that nice? Well, Jessica's already written sand, so if you can write box on the board, you can have a prize. Just behind Jessica was uh, little Levi Goldberg, a Jewish boy. Levi, what did you do at recess? Well, I wanted to play in the sandbox, but Jessica and Abdul wouldn't let me, and they called me names, and they chased me away and threw stones at me. Well, well, that's not very good, but tell you what, Levi, if you can come up and write anti-Semitic racial discrimination on the board, you can have a prize too. <laughs> So anyway, we do like stories with happy endings, not really stories like that. And I think most of us agree we would love to see everyone treated the same regardless of their racial or social background. In Ruth chapter 4, we see three very different characters, all treated equally by God, all blessed, regardless of their background. So if you've been here recently, you know we've been working our way through the book of Ruth, and this is the last week of the series. It's only four chapters, and as we've been telling you, it's a very small book with a whole lot of love. In the book of Ruth, as I said, three main characters, and all of them are blessed, all have a happy ending. If you haven't been here recently, and if you're not familiar with the story of Ruth, let me just very briefly tell you what you've missed in the first three chapters. There was a man named Elimelech who lived in the town of Bethlehem in the land of Israel way back in the time of the judges, around about 1100 B.C., now, the book starts that there was a famine in the land, so Elimelech took his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, and they decided to go and live in the land of Moab for a little while. While they were in Moab, the two sons grew up, both got married uh, to Moabite women, and then tragedy struck. First, Elimelech died, and then a few years later, both of the boys died, leaving Naomi a widow with no husband, no sons, but two daughters-in-law. So she decided to go back home to Bethlehem. One of the daughters-in-law decided to stay, return to her family and stay in Moab. But the other one, a young lady called Ruth, decided to, to follow Naomi and come and live with her in the town of Bethlehem. When they got home to Bethlehem, it was harvest time and they obviously needed food to eat, to, to survive. So Ruth goes out to work. And we begin to see the seeds of a, a rather unlikely romance. See, a man called Boaz owns the fields where Ruth is working. He's very impressed with her hard work and her kindness and her dedication. And Ruth is similarly impressed with Boaz, who is a kind and generous man. In chapter 3 last week, we heard how Naomi gave Ruth some very specific instructions on what to do to kind of get Boaz's attention and draw his attention to their plight. And Ruth obeyed those instructions. Uh, and her and Boaz had a conversation, and it was pretty clear then that Boaz uh, wanted to do the right thing and wanted to marry Ruth. 
So in ancient Israel, the custom was that if a man died, uh, his brother or his nearest relative would be responsible, not only for the land, but the wife, the children, uh, to take care of them. Uh, obviously, this is a society where there were very few career women, very few opportunities for that, no social security, so the male relatives were expected to provide for the women, especially for the widows. So, in fact, a, a dead man's brother would often marry the widow and so that any more children that they had would actually pass down the brother's uh, family line. Uh, one of the commentaries I read this week explained that a dead man's brother or relative was expected to care for the people, the property and the posterity of the deceased man. You don't just inherit the land, you don't just provide for the family, but you actually try to keep his family line going. So it was a good system and everyone was included and cared for. So it turns out that Boaz was in fact distantly related to Elimelech. And uh, he had the responsibility, or the right, depending which way you want to look at it, uh, to marry Ruth and to provide for her. Uh, Naomi, by this time, was too old to have children, so there was no obligation to marry her, but certainly uh, providing for her would have been part of the deal. Now, Boaz is willing. In fact, we get the impression that he's uh, very keen to take his responsibility seriously, to marry Ruth, to provide for Naomi, and to preserve the family line of Elimelech. However... There was another man more closely related who sort of has first dibs. Now, just to explain, these guys are not related to Ruth, but they were related to Elimelech and his sons, and therefore they are now responsible for Naomi and Ruth, uh, the widows of Elimelech and his sons. So, that's the brief summary. Now we get to chapter 4, where Boaz goes down to the city gate, which was like the meeting place, you know, the central square, the, the place where all the public business was transacted. And as we read earlier, Boaz gets exactly what he wanted. Uh, the other man was keen to buy the land, but when he realised there were other obligations as well, well, he changed his mind. He abdicated his responsibility and um, was happy for Boaz to do that. See, the other man, he wanted the benefits of the extra land, but he wasn't prepared to make the sacrifice to take on the other obligations. He was not prepared to pay the price. Paying the price is a... You know, a saying, and um, most of you know I follow footy, and um, often, many people consider 1989 was one of the best grand finals ever played. Um, it was a very high-scoring game, a very close finish, and a, a number of um, fantastic individual performances uh, within that game, uh, including uh, Gary Ablett Senior kicking nine goals in a losing team, winning the Norm Smith medal, and publicly thanking God afterwards, which is a, also always a bit of a highlight. But Alan Jeans was the coach uh, of Hawthorne that day. And Alan Jeans must have been a great coach. In fact, he was so good, he even coached St Kilda to a premiership. Like, I mean, how good is that? I mean, only one man in the history of the universe has done that. And uh, Luke saying, amen, brother. So thank you, God, for Alan Jeans. Bring him back. Yes, he's passed away now, sorry, Luke. Um, but Alan Jeans also coached Hawthorne to three premierships. And this particular day, at halftime, uh, people often talk about the, the speech that Alan Jeans gave to his players. So they were in front at halftime, but they were tiring. It had been a really tough game. Uh, already, uh, John Platten, one of their star players, a Brownlow medalist, he'd already gone to hospital with a pretty serious concussion. Robert DiPietro-Menico, another Brownlow medalist, had a punctured lung from a collision with another player. And Dermot Brewer and the star forward had broken ribs from being hit behind play in the opening minute of the game. So they were, they were wounded players, they were struggling, and Alan Jeans knew he had to really, really inspire. 
So he, he told a story about a little boy who needed a new pair of shoes. And this boy had saved up all his money and he knew exactly the pair of shoes he wanted. And when he had enough money, he went down to the store. And there was two pairs of shoes in the store. And one was the perfect pair that this little boy had saved up for. But it was, going to cost, it was an expensive pair. It was going to cost him every single cent that he had saved. And there was another pair of shoes there. They weren't as nice, they weren't as good, but they were a bit cheaper. And the little boy had a decision to make. And he decided to buy the cheaper pair of, pair, pair of shoes and just save up a little bit of money for another day. Well, the little boy pretty quickly regretted his decision because the new shoes, the cheaper shoes, weren't very comfortable and they started to leak and it wasn't long before they started to fall apart. And the little boy always wished that he had paid the price and got the better pair of shoes, got what he really wanted. And the story goes that Alan Jeans walked around the room to each of his players and one at a time and he looked at them in the eye and he said, are you prepared to pay the price? And his voice got louder and louder. He said, are you prepared to pay the price for victory today? Are you prepared to pay the price? And the players, several of them have told how when they went back on the ground, they were so determined, so motivated that they were going to pay the price and, did, and do everything they could to win that game. Well, if you watched that game or if you've ever heard about it, you know, it was a very close finish and a wounded team held on to win by six points in a great finish, and they all gave credit to Alan Jeans and his inspirational speech about paying the price. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells parables about uh, great treasures and about pearls of great beauty and about merchants who would sell everything they owned just to buy this one thing that they valued above all else. They were prepared to pay the price. Of course, Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God, uh, a grand final is only a footy match. And this man in Ruth chapter 4, he was talking about family responsibilities. But the principle is all the same, about being prepared to pay the price. And this man, history doesn't even record his name, but he, and he, maybe he had a valid reason for not marrying Ruth. Maybe he was already married, maybe he had other children, he didn't want to dilute their inheritance. But for whatever reason, he said no. He did not want to pay the price. And so Boaz very quickly agreed to marry Ruth and to buy the land, and he made sure there was a whole bunch of witnesses to testify to this public um, commitment. Then we read how Boaz and Ruth got married, and they had a son. So Naomi was now happy. She, you know, she has a grandchild to care for. Ruth is happy. She's been like an outsider, and now she's married, and she's secure, and she's part of the family. And Boaz was happy. It's worth just a quick note here. Although we kind of get the impression because Boaz notices Ruth straight away when he first sees her, but the Bible never specifies that Ruth was beautiful. The Bible tells us she was hardworking, she was known for her kindness and her virtue and her character, but it doesn't specify that she was beautiful. And I think Boaz, being a godly and wise man, he would have known anyway that character is actually a whole lot more important than outward beauty. So if you're a young person out there and you're still single and you'd like to be married one day, please learn the lesson of Boaz that look for someone who is kind and hardworking and dedicated and virtuous, someone who has a good character rather than just someone who's you know, a hot chick or a big pair of biceps or whatever it is you're looking for. Because character trumps looks. And um, praise God, Tracy um, followed that advice. Um, <laughs> So there's three central characters in this book, uh, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, and they all have a 
happy ending. Now, these three lives, these three people had completely different lives, different backgrounds, different storylines, but they're all now tied together as one part of God's divine plan. Let's consider uh, quickly each of these three, because I'm sure you will find that whatever your life circumstances are, you will be able to relate in some way to part of the stories of these three characters. First of all, Naomi. The book of Ruth begins with Naomi and her family leaving Israel because of a famine. It doesn't say God told them to go and move to Moab. In fact, kind of the opposite, because earlier on God had brought them to the promised land and he said, this is your land, this is where you live, this is what I've provided for you, stay here, don't go marrying all the foreigners, just stay here as the people of God to be an example to the rest of the world. But a famine comes along, so it got a little bit hard for a while, a bit awkward, and so Elimelech and Naomi sort of um, made up their own solution and said, well, let's go and live in Moab uh, for a while. Now, I don't know whether you've ever had a time where, you know, God's laid out one path for you and you've decided, yeah, I reckon I'm going to try this way for a while. I know I have. Um, When I was in year 12, coming to the end of high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So I decided that going to uni might be a pretty handy way just to sort of prolong the decision for a little while. But I lived in Ballarat. I had absolutely no desire to move away from home to go to Melbourne to study. So, well, I'll go to the uni in Ballarat. Let's check out what courses are available there. So there was a a business course. That looked pretty good. I'll put that one on my preferences. There was a humanities course. That looked okay. I'll put that one down. And I even had, believe it or not, a business, uh, a bachelor level um, degree in librarianship. And I thought, well, I mean, three years to learn the Jewish system and where the book goes? I mean, seriously? Um, obviously, obviously, libraries are quiet places, so I thought maybe I'm going to learn how to say shh in 72 different languages or something. You know, that, 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 that might be fun. So I thought, yeah, you know, I, I liked libraries. In year 12, I spent a lot of time in the library at high school. Um, I remember one particular day, I was in the, in the library at school uh, looking for a book, and at lunchtime, and there was a bunch of year sevens in there, and they were kind of annoying me, you know, year seven kids, they were running, they were basically playing chasey in the library, running up and down between the rows of books and they were pushing past me and bumping into me and anyway, um, I was getting a bit sick of it. So there was just through the other side of the shelf where I was standing, a whole bunch of them, I heard them congregated and they were all, you know, laughing and whispering and, and no one was around. So I just leaned through, there was shelves this side and a well, the books that side, so I just leaned forward and just shoved a handful of books down <laughs> on, on top of these kids. And of course, there was yelling and running, and the librarian came over and she saw all these year seven kids and books all over the floor, and she just lost it. She said, What? Everyone in this section, get out! 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 I'm sorry, David, you can stay. Everyone else, get out! <laughs> so it's, um, it's fair to say I, I left as well. I figured it's not going to take all that long before she realises that the Books are on this, you know, high shelf, and the year sevens didn't pull them down on themselves. So, uh, discretion being the better part of valour, I left as well. But, but libraries were good places, and I thought I'll put this course down. And I prayed. My fervent prayer was, Lord, whatever course you want me to get into, open the door and let me into that course. Well, did my exam, got the results, first round of uni offers, and guess what? I'm accepted into a Bachelor of Arts in Librarianship at Ballarat Uni. So. <laughs> Okay, Lord, that's what you want. So off I went to uni. It's fair to say I did not apply myself to this course. It didn't inspire me. Uh, it wasn't all that exciting. And, yeah, I, just, I went to one class. And about the third week, 
the lecturer started asking, randomly selecting a student to tell us about you know, the readings for that week. And well, I hadn't been doing the readings, hadn't even bought the textbook, so I'd, I didn't want to get picked, so I just stopped going to that class. <laughs> and uh, about halfway through the semester, I turned up to another class and my mate said, did you hand in the assignment? I said, what assignment? You know, the major assignment with 40% that was due at 8 a.m. this morning. Uh, no. So um, that class wasn't going too well either. What, what was going well, in the cafeteria, they had like their own little radio room where you could play music um, in the cafeteria. So I went and did the training and became like a DJ and I'd play, play Christian music at full volume in, in the lunch hour and that was my witnessing. And was, so that was going really well, but I wasn't going to class and I wasn't doing the assignments and I know there's no justice in this world, but can you believe they failed me? Like, <laughs> like seriously, but anyway. Ah, so there's another lesson for you, young people. Um, but so they basically told me, I said, go, they told me to defer for a year. Go away, sort yourself out, decide whether you actually want to do this course or not. So I went and I got a job and worked in a factory for a year. And I pretty soon figured out that's not what I wanted to do with my life. And my, I remember that year, my, my constant prayer that year was, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? Where am I heading? Show me your will, Lord. What, what am I supposed to be doing? Well, I finished a year in a factory and that was no future, so I decided I'll go and try uni again. So I went back, but now all the people I'd started with, they're like doing third year and about to finish and I'm starting from scratch, so I thought I'll play that for a joke. So I dropped out again and I worked as a carpet cleaner and eventually at the October of what should have been my third year of uni, when I should have been doing my final exams and finishing, one day I was suddenly inspired to go and apply for a job at a Christian bookshop in Ballarat. Well, I'd had two Christian bookshops and I was a regular customer a couple of times a week at one of them, but I'd, I'd never been to this other one. So I went up there and handed in a resume and got the standard line, oh, we're pretty right for now, but we'll keep you in mind, blah, blah, blah. About three days later, I got a phone call from a guy called Colin, who was one of the, one of the partners in the business of this Christian bookshop. And unknown to me, he'd already talked to my referees, he'd even talked to my dad, he'd, he'd been checking me out, and he said, hey, Dave, we're... Um, we're very busy here, wholesale side of the business. We've got a whole bunch of orders at the minute. How'd you like to come in just for two days and give us a hand? I said, sure. So I went and worked there for two days. And they said, hey, heaps more orders. Come in again next week for another two days. I said, sure. Next week they said, look, we're going to be busy till Christmas. Can you work two days a week till Christmas? Sure. A week later, Dave, the orders are flowing in. Can you work four days a week till Christmas? Not a problem. December, Dave, we're flat chat. Can you work full time till Christmas? No worries. Christmas came, some of the, the three three partners in the business, they all wanted holidays in January, so they were short-staffed. Dave, can you work in January? No worries. In January, they offered me a full-time job. I ended up working there for 12 and a half years and grew a lot as a person, and that was most definitely the place where God wanted to, me to be in that area of my life, at that time of my life. So all that time that I was praying for guidance, Lord, you know, show me what you want. Well, God had shown me. I said, Lord, get me in the course you want. God opened this door, come and do library but. I decided, well, no, I'll just go and do my own thing for a while. But did God abandon me? Did God turn his back on me and go, ah, oh, he's a lost cause, give up on him? Nah, nah, nah. When the time was right, God got me back on the path that he wanted. God still blessed me. God still provided for me. God still guided me through life. So God still had plans for me. And Naomi may have been off track for a while, but God brought her back to the place that he wanted her. God still blessed her 
God still made her part of his plan. Maybe you're like Naomi. Maybe you've made choices along the way that are based on your own preference and your own opinion and what you thought was a good idea rather than on what God wanted. Maybe you've messed up your life for a while. And I want to encourage you today that God is still faithful. God can steer you back where he has planned for you to be. God can still bless you. God can still provide for you. And God can still make you a part of his plans. Naomi also got bitter for a while. She blamed God. We read earlier in the book how, you know, when she came back, oh, you know, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because, you know, God has abandoned me and God has let me down and God's done all these bad things. And maybe you sometimes are angry at God because of your circumstances. But God can see the big picture. See, God never says life will be easy and stress-free and cruisy. But what God does say is that he will never leave us. Even, in fact, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. So the reality is there are going to be some challenges and hard times in life. But God promises to be with us. See, we might let God down, but God will never let us down. If you're like me and like Naomi, a great verse for us to remember is Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding, but seek God's will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Great advice. The second character to look at is Ruth. Now, Ruth grew up in a foreign land. She didn't grow up amongst the people of God. We don't know anything about her childhood. We don't know uh, what uh, religion or false gods or whatever her family was into. We just know that she married one of Naomi's sons, and he later died. And then we know that when Naomi decided to go home, that Ruth chose to follow and go with her. And in Ruth chapter 1, we read Ruth's statement to Naomi, Ruth's speech, which was uh, a great little indicator into Ruth's life. In verse 16, she says, Your God will be my God. And in verse 17, she says, May the Lord punish me if I allow anything but death to separate us. Somewhere along the way, Naomi had, uh, sorry, Ruth had clearly... Um, developed her own uh, awareness of God and her own, her own faith in God. Maybe it was the example of her, her first husband, uh, we don't know, but we do know that Ruth chose to go with Naomi to live among God's people, even though she would be an outsider, an alien. And we also read that she worked hard and she earned respect and became known for her, her kindness and her virtue. Maybe you can identify at times with the life of Ruth and how she must have felt, being an outsider, a refugee, a widow. She would have felt lonely, isolated, vulnerable. She was doing her best, but she was ultimately dependent upon the provision and the protection of other people. From a Christian perspective, she grew up outside of the church. From a social perspective, you might say that she was an outcast. She was marginalised. From an income perspective, you would say that she was welfare dependent. And yet God was watching over Ruth. God provided. God blessed her. God included her in his plans. See, God does not discriminate based on race or social background. God treated everyone the same. And the third character in the story was Boaz. So if you couldn't identify with Naomi, the prodigal, or Ruth, the outsider, maybe you can identify with Boaz. He had a lot going for him. He was wealthy, he had respect, he had status, he had influence. 
He wasn't a young man anymore, maybe he was a bit lonely, but in material ways, he hadn't made. Yet even he found that there was something more important, something worth paying for, something worth sacrificing for. There's a story from 19th century Japan about a, a little village uh, on the east coast of Japan. And one evening, uh, there was an earthquake. Now, earthquakes weren't that uncommon in this part of the world. And so apparently once the shaking stopped, most of the village just uh, continued about their business. But on the hill up above the village, there was an older man who lived there. And he could see far out to the ocean much further than the people uh, in the village. And as the shaking stopped, he looked out to sea and he saw the, the sea just sucking back in, and he knew exactly what that meant, that a tsunami was coming. And he, he yelled out, he tried to get the attention, but he was too far away. And um, he, he knew he didn't have time to run down and get people and to, to bring them back up. And so in desperation, he looked around for a way to get their attention. And he had his rice harvest, all harvested, all the work done, all laid out in bundles in his fields, worth an absolute fortune. And in desperation, he took a torch and he set fire to the rice bundles and quickly the fire took up and the flames leaped in the air and the people in the village looked up and they saw the flames and a whole, you know, stacks of them started heading up the hill as quick as they could to come and help the old man to put the fire out. And when they got to the top and they saw the old man looking out to sea and they turned and they saw this huge wall of water just rushing in and it just obliterated the village, wiped it out, houses just trashed like matchsticks. And as the water receded again, there was dead silence on the, on the hill as they realised what would have happened. And the old man explained, that's why I set fire to the harvest, to the rice harvest. And see, that was, he was a wealthy man, but now he stood there as poor and as destitute as everyone else around him. But he knew that there were some things more important. And in, by his actions, he had saved over 400 lives because he realised that some things are more important, some things are worth making a sacrifice for, some things are worth paying the price for. So maybe you are like Boaz. Maybe you have financial security. You have health and status and influence. You have all of the things that you set out to achieve in life. But maybe you realise there's still something missing. There's still more to life. In Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus says, What do you benefit if you gain the whole world? but lose your own soul. See, Boaz paid the price to redeem Ruth. And Jesus paid the price to redeem you and me and everyone who will put their faith in him. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Boaz was a redeemer for a couple of people, but Jesus was the ultimate redeemer and for me, the best part of this whole story comes in the last few verses when it goes through the, the genealogy, the ancestry and then the, the descendants. And it says, Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. You might have heard of David, little boy from Bethlehem, shepherd boy, giant killer, became a king, a man after God's own heart, a, a legend in his, for his people for many generations afterwards. Jesus was even called a son of David because Jesus was descended from King David and therefore Jesus was descended from Boaz and Ruth. And if you read in Matthew chapter 1, which some people think is a really boring chapter, it's just the genealogy of Jesus for 42 generations and 
understanding the Jewish genealogies, they never mentioned women. Just so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so. But you know, you read Matthew chapter 1 and Ruth gets a special mention in the genealogy of Jesus. And I think that's just one of the most awesome things. Naomi, Ruth and Boaz were all set free in different ways. They were redeemed by God's grace. So God didn't just provide and bless and include them. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz didn't just have plans for their own life, but God included them in his eternal plan, his ultimate plan of redemption. So whoever you are today, whatever your story is, I want to assure you that God knows your name. God has a plan for your life, and you were created to do good things. If you're an outsider, God wants to include you. If you are a prodigal, God wants to bring you back. If you are a success story, Jesus is your missing ingredient. And if you want a happy ending that lasts for all eternity, then you need a redeemer. We all need a redeemer. We all need Jesus. So we talk about amazing grace. And God demonstrated his grace to Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And the book of Ruth never mentions Jesus, but it certainly points us to Jesus, the ultimate redeemer. Jesus paid the price for us We to give our life to him. And this is amazing grace that we have been set free. Let's pray. Father God, it's always uh, wonderful just to read of your work in different people's lives. We are humbled, we're inspired, and I pray that every one of us today, everyone here, will give our lives totally, unreservedly, and passionately in service to you. Amen.